Welcome to our Trade Academy podcast series in which our experts simplify complex concepts involved in international trade and trade finance. This episode will include IBCs, inward collection bills, as well as inspection certificates and fraud in documentation, plus an overview of the various risks for importers. We've discussed earlier about import products we offer that are either earmarked to funded limits and unfunded limits. However, there are some products that are not marked under such facilities, and that is the Inward Collection Bills or IBCs as an abbreviation. Inward Collection Bills are sent by the supplier through their bankers to the collecting bank, that is the importer's bank. The instructions to the collecting bank are given in the collection instructions by the supplier's bank. It is a simple process for banks as they do not examine documents in detail. Merely check if all documents stated in the collection order are presented. Collection instructions details exactly the actions the exporter wishes the bank to take in relation to handling the documents and collecting settlement from the importer. Banks do not give an undertaking when handling collection documents, whether the documents are to be handed over on uh, documents against payment or documents against acceptance basis. For an importer, it may be advised to agree on document against acceptance terms as the importer would only be required to pay after taking charge of goods. The rules that apply to collections are the URC 522. For both document against payment and document against acceptance terms, the importer may settle the bills by availing the SIL facility in place or to the debit of their account. Now we'll move on and look at the risks for an importer. The first is non-delivery of goods. Goods may not be delivered because of fraud by the beneficiary. In such circumstances, the applicant may still remain liable to reimburse the issuing bank when a complying presentation is made. Next is short shipment or shipment of inferior goods. Goods may be short shipped or the goods may be of inferior quality despite the presentation of documents that comply with the terms and conditions of the documentary credit. In this event, an applicant may suffer a loss on the eventual sale of the goods. The same risk also applies if the goods are received late and the applicant is unable to sell at the price originally anticipated. To minimize losses being sustained for these reasons, it is important that an applicant makes every attempt to establish the integrity and trading record of the proposed beneficiary before entering into a documentary credit transaction with them. In this respect, some comfort may be gained by obtaining a bank or credit agency status report on the beneficiary. It may also be appropriate to require an independent pre-shipment inspection of the goods with the outcome evidenced on one of the documents to be called for in the documentary credit. So the third one goods received by the applicant prior to documents being received by an issuing bank. If an applicant is required to take delivery of the goods by the use of a shipping guarantee rather than by using the usual transport document, this will normally require it to be an authorized payment under the documentary credit notwithstanding 
any discrepancy in the documents when they are received. Now, these are critical risks and all importers and all buyers need to know. An issuance of a shipping guarantee uh, is easy to do, but if the documents that are received not in compliance with the terms of the DC, then you have already availed the and you have taken charge of the goods. So these are certain concerns that you have to be concerned as an importer. Loss or damage to goods in transit. The owner of the goods at the time of such occurrence will look into its insurers for financial compensation. Both parties should ensure that they fully understand which party is responsible for arranging insurance when agreeing the terms of the sales contract. For example, via the use of an importer, which should be reflected in the type and content of the documents called for under the document credit. The applicant should be satisfied that the level of cover to be arranged provides an appropriate level of protection. So the next is foreign exchange risk. If the currency of documentary credit is not the applicant's operating currency, there may be a difference in exchange rates between the time when documentary credit is issued and the time at which settlement is made. If the movement is unfavorable to the applicant, it may have to pay more than the anticipated price, reducing its profit margin or incurring a loss. An applicant can protect against this risk by entering into a, a forward exchange contract. A forward has the effect of fixing the future exchange rate. Now, the next is failure of the issuing bank. In the event of a failure of the issuing bank, an applicant may be required to pay the beneficiary directly. This may result in the applicant effectively paying twice. That is, if it had already deposited funds with the issuing bank to meet its liability under the documentary credit as part of the conditions of the credit facility. Next is fraud in the presented documents. An applicant also faces the risk that payment will be obtained for non-existent of or worthless merchandise against the presentation of one or more documents that are subsequently found to be fraudulently issued or signed. Thanks, Mona. So the last two risks, regulatory risk and legal risk, we all know these risks need to be taken into consideration by all importers. I'm sure you are up to date with the regulatory uh, rules that are prevalent in, in, in the Middle East and in the UAE in particular. Uh, Mona and I, while we were preparing this uh, presentation, uh, we thought what is important to our importers? What would they want to know? And we came across some of the documentation issues that most importers, most clients have. And we picked two documents that are really crucial and I thought maybe it's important to share our views and a little bit of learning on, on two documents. So I'll leave it up to Mona to, to start with the first one. The first and the most important is bill of lading. Now, what is a bill of lading? The definition. Well, a bill of lading is, is a trade document provided by a carrier to a seller or shipper. This document acknowledges the boarding of certain goods on the ship as a cargo, which is to be delivered to the consignee. The consignee is mostly already identified, and the document gets its name from the verb to lade, 
that means loading a cargo or goods onto a type of transportation, mostly a ship. Let's look into the features of a bill of lading. It has three important features. First is proof of contract of shipment. The bill of lading is the proof of a contract of shipment between the shipper and the carrier and not the contract of shipment as many would think. It is also not a contract between the buyer and the seller. It is only the evidence of the shipment's contract to transport the cargo as decided by the buyer and the seller. The next is receipt of shipment. The bill of lading also acts as a receipt for goods received by the carrier in good condition from the shipper. The carrier issues the bill of lading in exchange for the receipt of the goods to be shipped. Next is title to the shipment. The bill of lading gives the holder the title to the shipment. The goods are transferred to the holder who can either claim them or transfer to someone further. Now there are different types of bill of ladings and we'll just quickly take a look at this. First is straight bill of lading. This is issued when the goods are already paid for and are directly shipped to the customer. Next is two order bill of lading, which is uh, used when the goods are sold on trade credit and the shipment can be either to a distributor or the customer directly. Next is clean bill of lading. This is used to state that the goods were in proper condition when loaded. This is a sign off from the carrier. Next is soiled bill of lading. This is used when the goods are marred or in any way or are damaged. Inland bill of lading. This is used to ship goods domestically through railways or roadways but not through seas. Ocean bill of lading. This is used to ship goods through seas both nationally and internationally. Multimodal combined transport bill of lading. A type of bill of lading where a shipment involves at least two ways of transport. And next is direct bill of lading. This is used when the vessel used to pick up the cargo delivers the shipment to the final destination as well. Stale bill of lading. This is used when the goods reach the port before the bill of lading. Now, a typical bill of lading contains the following information. Names and detailed addresses of the shipper and the receiver. Details of the ports of destination and departure. Shipment date and arrival date. The number of units to be shipped. Kind of packaging used such as cartons, drums, pallets, etc. A note if a hazardous material is being shipped. Items description including the common name and the material of which it is made of. Freight classification. The weight of the consignment. The value of the item being shipped and carrier or agent details. Thanks, Mona. The bill of lading is a document that needs to be understood by all our importers. There are various elements in the, in the bill of lading that you should know which will make this document conform to the terms of the DC or not if the, the transaction is based on DC mechanisms. One other document that we were actually thinking about of talking to you is on the inspection certificate. What is an inspection certificate? Why is it important for an importer? 
when to call for an inspection certificate are some of the key questions that you, you may have. A certificate of inspection is a document which certifies the condition of a commodity, perishable goods, for example, at the point of analysis or inspection or prior to shipment. The keyword is prior to shipment. Inspection of goods is generally carried out when cargo is to be shipped or transported to different countries, especially developing ones. The certificate is usually required at ports and is expected to contain the details and identity of the inspection party or officer. A certificate of inspection is often a required document for presentation under a letter of credit. When used as a required document under letter of credit terms, the details and identity of the party providing the inspection should be mentioned. If this is not done, banks will accept any document appearing on its face to be an inspection certificate issued by any party other than the beneficiary. Okay, so let's dive into some important UCP articles. As this training is to cover international trade on an importer's perspective, we thought it would be beneficial uh, for us to share. So one, Article 4 is credit versus contracts. Then Article 10, the amendments. Article 14, standard for examination of documents. And then Article 27, clean transport documents. So we will go with one by one. So credits versus contracts. Now, issuing bank should try to avoid situations where applicant seeks to attach the referenced performer invoice or contract to the credit, thereby requiring banks to examine the documents against content of the performer invoice or contract. This does not stop a documentary credit for, from stating a goods description that says description of goods as per performer invoice number. ABC or whatever the number that may be. Yeah, exactly. Attaching a performer invoice or contract to a credit does not provide the applicant yourself as an importer any level of comfort in relation to goods ordered versus goods received. So this is something that all importers must know and must be aware of. Let's go to the next one. Amendments. This is Article 10. An amendment cannot come into effect without the consent of the beneficiary, the issuing bank, and the confirming bank, if any. I repeat myself, the amendment cannot come into effect without the consent of the beneficiary, the issuing bank, and the confirming bank, if any. So when is the issuing bank bound on an amendment? An issuing bank is irrevocably bound by an amendment as of the time it issues the amendment. The moment the bank issues the amendment, the issuing bank is bound by its amendment. Now let's go on to the beneficiary. When is the beneficiary bound by an amendment? UCP 600 Article 10C states that the beneficiary should give a notification of acceptance or rejection of an amendment. I repeat that. The beneficiary should give a notification of acceptance or rejection of an amendment. What is interesting is failing that notification of an acceptance or rejection of that amendment, banks will make a determination of acceptance based on the presentation of documents. I'm going to say that again. 
failing notification of an acceptance of the amendment, banks will make a determination of acceptance based on presentation of documents. Now, it is not always possible to determine from the documents presented whether an amendment has been accepted or rejected. This is crucial to know. And banks will need to make inquiries with the beneficiary to ascertain the position. Yeah? A question to you all. A credit is issued for, let's say, US dollars 200,000, covering a shipment of mobile phones. No quantity is specified in the credit, and partial shipments are allowed. That's the scenario. Subsequently, an amendment is issued reducing the credit amount to US dollars 150,000. Okay? In our example, or as I mentioned earlier, the beneficiary must provide its acceptance for a reduction in this manner or a rejection. But the article goes on to talk about the presentation of a document that determines the acceptance by the beneficiary. The beneficiary presents documents for US dollars 150,000. A question to you all, my dear clients. Has the amendment been accepted or has a partial shipment been affected? So in such situations, it's only right the issuing bank, a good issuing bank, will go back to the beneficiary to get confirmation whether this is on the grounds of an acceptance to the amendment or is it on the grounds of a partial shipment. That's it for this episode. Please join us in the next installment to learn more about credits versus contract, document data, clean transport documents, and the legalization of shipping documents. <laughs>